there's no question about that. And I think people have noticed the momentum of the program. And that doesn't mean you're going to win every game, but, but I think there's a general vibe out there about the, the positivity going on here in our program and at the university in general, where when we first got here, um, we were definitely an unknown. I don't know that you could have come in at a more difficult time than we did under the circumstances. And yes, every year in college football, um, coaches get let go um, because teams have struggled and new staff comes in and there's a natural uh, burst of energy uh, with that renewal. But you have to remember that we came in in the middle of the pandemic and, and uh, you know, you have a first time head coach and you have a lot of coaches that have come from different backgrounds, uh, but maybe don't necessarily have uh, that SEC marquee attached to them. So we've had to earn all that. And all right. Welcome back to the GamecockScoop.com podcast, the official podcast of GamecockScoop.com on Rivals. I'm Caleb, joined by Alan. And that was Pete Limbo kind of talking about the state of the program. Actually, several of the coaches this past week um, talked about the state of the program, which makes sense, right? We're coming off a bye week. Don't have a game to talk about last week. Uh, so uh, took some time to reflect. If you want to hear our reflections on the state of the program, we actually talked pretty at length about it on last, was that Thursday, Friday, yes. whatever, whatever the last episode is, uh, go back and listen to that if you haven't heard it. Um, for the most part, we're pretty much in line with what Limbo just said. Um, optimistic, cautiously optimistic, um, but there's a pretty big game this week uh, as far as the balance of the 2023 season. Um, and I believe Beamer also had a quote uh, this past week where he was talking about expectations and, you know, you, they kind of overachieved the first two seasons and you win seven games and then you win eight games and people automatically expect you to win nine or 10 games. Um, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but I don't know that nine or 10 games is necessarily the only sign of progress. I think if you win seven or eight games this year with that schedule, with the recruiting classes uh, that are coming in, um, you probably still feel pretty good about where you're at. I don't think that there's, um, I don't know. I it's not success is not necessarily linear. I guess in college football, especially when you are building a program from scratch the way that they have. Yeah, I don't think success is linear in general in college football. I just don't think there's a point A to B to C to D to national title. I don't know if that exists. Um, yeah, I think this you might you almost have to look at this as a maintenance year, just keeping everything on schedule. Obviously, upping the recruiting making changes that you need to make, whether that's on the staff or whatever else, where you realize things need to be better. We've heard that a lot from Beamer. If you're maintaining about where you were last year, and I don't think they're going to get to eight and four, now that they're already two and three, but if you get to seven, maybe get an eighth in a bowl game and kind of maintain where you were last year, I think that's, I think you can live with that if you're, obviously it's not what anybody in that building wants, but looking at the situation kind of from a 30,000 foot level, I think you can live with that. Yeah, and it sounded like, um, you got as close to, I guess, an honest assessment of that uh, from Beamer this past week where he said yeah. something like, we could still win, you know, nine or ten games. Right. Uh, but I think, yeah, in general, the people in that room are taking a bigger picture approach than just the success or not of the 2023 season um, sort of telling the whole story. And I tend to agree. Um, I think you're – there may be some criticisms about roster management as far as the lines of scrimmage go uh, with the yeah. way that things have played out so far this season. But I mean, it was going to be a tough situation because of the COVID year and you had all of these veterans that stayed around all the way through their fifth, sixth, seventh year. Um, and it's really tough to, to build those relationships uh, with the top flight offensive and defensive linemen so I think now we're seeing the 2023 class, 2024 class um, after Beamer and his staff got entrenched uh, right. around in the trenches, but it was going to be really tough. Also, your top 2022 offensive lineman, um, that was Case and Henry, that was 
slated to to be a starter this year has been injured. Although we did get some good news this yeah. week that he might be back in a couple of weeks. Um, we'll have to see on that. Before we get too far into the weeds of the program and and the Florida week and all of that, I did want to talk a little bit about recruiting. A lot um, of bit about recruiting this week. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, I'll have my weekly recruiting wrap up on tomorrow. Um, so you can get some more detail on all that. But I did want to just give you a couple of the headlines. Uh, probably number one headline is that Jalua Solomon, who was um, down to Auburn and South Carolina earlier this summer, he committed to Auburn in August after I had put in a future cast to South Carolina. We talked at the time that that was one of there, there were several uh, recruits this summer that kind of made some last second sort of switch decisions, possibly NIL related, which we can also get into because uh, Beamer talked a little bit about that this week, too. But um, anyway, uh, Julius Solomon decommitted from Auburn this week. Assuming everything is pretty much the same, uh, that would put South Carolina in really good position to complete the flip. And everything I've heard uh, is that that is trending in that direction. So my future cast for Julius Solomon to South Carolina that I put in before he committed to Auburn, uh, still holding steady and I'm not going to change that. So we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but maybe I get some points back on that one. That'd be nice. Um, other news, uh, in the recruiting world, this is going to be a big visit weekend. I'll have the full visitors list, uh, posted tomorrow, but maybe the headline there is South Carolina's top 2025 quarterback target, Ryan Montgomery out of Finley, Ohio, four star, being recruited by pretty much everyone in the country projects is like an elite 11 sort of guy um, should be in town this weekend. Uh, that'll be pretty big uh, in that continued recruitment. Um, and then also on the basketball side of things, we saw a couple commitments. If you didn't see those, go back on geekcrackscoop.com. You can read about those, but also uh, four star out of Charlotte, Six eight, uh, small forward class of 2025. Sadiq White is expected to be on campus this weekend as well. Lamont Ferris just went and visited with him earlier, or I guess, yeah, earlier this Monday, week. I think. Um, and now he's expected to make an unofficial visit this weekend, so that's one to, to track. That would be one of those splashier names we've talked yeah. about how really the staff needs a couple of those. Um, they've done a good job, I think, of evaluating talent and finding some hidden gems, and we'll see if they're able to, to develop those. We'll talk a little basketball here in the coming weeks as we're getting closer to the season. But um, that would be, you know, a little bit of a splashier name, and, and uh, recruiting momentum definitely matters uh, just as much as talent evaluation and uh, – development i guess sometimes it's good to make the headline you know um all right i think that's all i have for recruiting right now like i said weekly recruiting wrap up tomorrow we'll have a lot more um where do you want to start on this florida game week so we kind of talked right here at the top this is a huge game south Carolina is sitting at two and three okay, yeah um one of the most winnable games i think uh, by FBI, the most winnable game left on the schedule. Uh, uh, Vanderbilt, probably, and Jacksonville State, but whatever. Um, up there. And uh, pretty much like all the other uh, bye weeks thus far in the Beamer era, kind of a turning point moment in the season, it feels like. Okay. Here's where I want to start. And if this is too much or if I'm doing too much with it, you can tell me. Okay, we talked like North Carolina week about setting a baseline for this team, trying to figure out where they were. We talked about Furman and Georgia weeks, kind of, all right, one should be a big win. One's probably going to be a big loss, even though it wasn't. What do we need to see outside of the score? We talked Mississippi State, Tennessee weeks about, all right, trying to figure out an identity for this team. It's SEC play now. It's not Georgia. I do believe in all that stuff. I do believe those conversations are, that's what you're here for. It's what you subscribe to the website. If you do, it's kind of what you listen for, but I think for one week, you can kind of throw all that stuff out. It's win or lose this week. It's win or lose. It's pass fail. It's black and white. If you play really poorly on offense, but you somehow block six punts and win with the most ridiculous game we've ever seen, that's a success. If you rush the ball for 300 yards and it's the greatest breakthrough we all never were expecting, but you somehow lose, that's still not enough. you got to win this week. I think I kind of take out all the other stuff. We're going to talk about it, but – I don't think the other stuff matters this week nearly as much. This is a win or lose 
pass fail week, I think, just to get to three and three and avoid maybe the bottom fall of that after two and four going into those two road games. Yeah, I think that's that's probably a good way to look at it. Um, also, there's a little bit of a revenge factor, I guess, after your worst game of the season last year, being in the swamp, um, outplayed by a team that probably was not 30 points better than you or, or whatever that final score ended up being. Um, so yeah, a, a real opportunity here, I think, to to capture back some momentum. Uh, a lot of the coaches I remember logging specifically this week talked about how this week was this bye week was really hard um, because you're analyzing negatives. You're coming off of a, a off of a loss, um, and it's a little different than the bye week last week where you were coming off of a program milestone sort of win against Kentucky. Um, so yeah, I think it's like put up or shut up time, pretty much. Yeah. Like um obviously there are all the deficiencies that we've been talking about all year are still there along the offensive line um but you have i mean you have to just uh hope that you used your bye week well um and that those freshmen are ready to take that next step because uh, they have to and and that is something that a lot of the coordinators and and beamer himself talked about this week was just um getting back to the basics and the simple things and what do you do well and trying to uh, really emphasize those things. Yeah. And that's where, if we are going to get into some of the weeds a little bit and with the, still the caveat, the only thing that actually matters Saturday scoreboard, how many freshmen are going to play? Uh, we've heard, we've heard some flashes from Tyshawn Russell who played a little bit more against Tennessee. Did he use the last two weeks to get ready? Is there going to be more of Nick Harbor? I think I know everybody wants Pop Howard sitting at about 20 to 25 snaps a game right now. We've still heard from Beamer and Clayton White. They want that to be more of a even rotation between him, Bam Martin, Scott, Debo, and Stone. Um, Desmond Dumiazulu, we haven't heard a lot from him. I yeah. I thought he flashed a little bit in t- the Tennessee game, but yeah. he still only played like eight or nine snaps. So Yeah, I mean, if, if ever a time where you're going to really – we say it every year, and it's it's true. But we, if there's ever a time we are really going to change things, we are going to reevaluate positions, reevaluate snap counts, whatever that is. It's going to be during your bye week, especially when you're coming off of it at home in a game you I mean your favorite to win, even though it's tight. You feel like you should be in this game. I also have an offensive line question. Same five Saturday. I feel like we've done this so many times, but Beamer said they're going to have to reevaluate that. Ja'Kai Moore is healthy. He missed the Tennessee game, obviously, but that gives you a guy that could play guard and tackle. They said they were going to reevaluate Sidney Fugar. I don't know if that's what you want in one of the tackle spots, but his name seems to be back in the mix after the the way the Lions struggled at Tennessee. Same five? What are we, what are we thinking Saturday? I mean, I think you should go with the same five and take your lumps. I mean, maybe rotate Ja'Kai Moore in there a that's, little bit more yeah. if he's healthy for sure. Um because I don't know that there's a huge difference between him and Wanamaker. Um, but yeah, I. so if we're looking back at that Beamer quote, he said, it may be the same five on Saturday or maybe an adjustment, whatever we do, let's get those five guys out there and go. I do think you have the advantage of being at home, um, which the road matchup at Tennessee, the crowd uh, in that night environment probably wasn't the most ideal situation for several freshmen making their first, second, third, maybe start. Um, So I don't know. I think at this point you just take your lumps. You know who your best five are, best six are. Um, Yeah. I don't see much utility in in going backwards at this point. That's kind of where I would say, I think that's a good way to put it. Everything's about continuity. It's something Dowell Loggins was talking about too, with combination blocks and things like that. I don't understand if you're moving backwards, if you're working new guys in. Obviously, you're hoping that at some point you're going to be able to get Casey Henry and maybe as a long shot, Jalen Nichols back in there at some point. But I think you, you've you seen that this can work. Like you saw it against Mississippi State. Again, that was another home game. You saw some – that's the that's the most efficiently they've ran the ball down and down all season. Um, you saw your line played pretty well for two and a half, three quarters at Georgia and – I think the other point here, too, is for all the stuff we've talked about with the South Carolina defense, not getting tackles for loss, not getting sacks, they're 13th and 14th, I think, in those two categories in the SEC. Well, so is Florida. They are also bottom two in TFLs and sacks. This is not one of the tougher fronts you're going to face this year. I mean, it's not even as tough of a front as you're going to face 
at Mizzou or at AM the next two weeks. So if you do feel like you have your five or again your six, if Ja'Kai Moore is healthy and you're at home where there's not going to be noise, or at least not when you have the ball, this feels like as good a week as any to try to stick some continuity together. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, last year, Florida's defensive front wreaked habit, <laughs> havoc in Gainesville. Um, so I don't know if there's something scheme-wise that needs to be adjusted. But, I mean, different offensive coordinator now and all, too. So uh, we'll see how that plays out. Um, I don't think that compared to the next two <laughs> uh, matchups, you have as much to worry about. Um I did see some comments from Loggins kind of addressing the horizontal passing game. And uh, we talked a lot about that coming out of Tennessee that um, Rattler had what, 26, 29, something like that completions, but it was for like 160 yards. um, None of it down the field. And he kind of said what we thought was, which was there's no time (laughs) for for those deep uh, routes to kind of progress. So I'll be interested to see if they can find ways to scheme a little bit more time uh, to try to hit Xavier Leggett down the field. Uh, who is your number two receiver? Yeah, and, that's a big um, question this week. We talked a little bit about that in the bye week. Omega Blake seems to have stepped up, but still no Antoine Wells. Sounds like it's still going to be a couple more weeks at, at the earliest with him. Um, is it one of those freshmen that you just mentioned? I think one way or another, you have to have someone that can take pressure off because otherwise teams are just going to continue to double Xavier Leggett, which I know – I logins or Beamer one uh, address this week as well. I would be, yes, Beamer did address that. And he more or less said what you're saying. We also made a point that if Leggett's being doubled, that should open up things in the run game too. That you should be able to get a hat on a hat in the box and be able to push some bodies, which uh, yes, I think we've had enough conversation about the running game and kind of where those deficiencies lie this season. Um, I would be surprised if Leggett's not doubled or at least bracketed for most of that game on Saturday. I think you would, if you go back and watch the Tennessee tape, that is what Tennessee did most of the day. It worked. Um, and he got his catches for sure. He got a couple in there. I'm thinking of one big slant play, I think, in the third quarter. But, yeah, you – Amari Brown's another one. I think you can do you can do a lot of creative things with him, some end-around stuff. Since so that's actually where the horizontal, if you – didn't want it can work because he's shifty. He can make guys miss. Um, this is not a Florida defense that particularly excels at tackling in space. I don't, again, that was, to me, that was the big takeaway from the Tennessee game. Tennessee tackled really, really well. And if you're going to be throwing horizontally, that's just, you're not going to have a chance. Yeah. I mean, Tennessee, Tennessee exposed, I guess, how to stop South Carolina, but it's a tough game plan um, because prior to that, pretty much every game you had, some explosive plays where your uh, skill positions made people miss right. and you just didn't, you couldn't get that uh, against Tennessee. Um, is is Florida as sound uh, as a ta- of a tackling team as Tennessee was last week, especially on the road in a hostile environment? Um, I wouldn't put my money on it, but you know, we'll, we'll have to see. Um, I guess that that's a good place to start. So what do you see as the key matchups in this game? Um I do think, yeah, um, can South Carolina's skill position players make a play one-on-one in space? Because I think they'll have those opportunities uh, for the offensive-defensive matchup. And then for South Carolina's defense versus Florida's offense, I think the big key is going to be stopping the run. Uh, Florida has a three-headed monster in Montrell Johnson Jr., Trevor Etienne, and a little bit to a less degree, uh, freshman Trayon Webb, who Gamecock fans should be familiar with because South Carolina fifth South Carolina was in the mix uh, for him as a recruit. Um, all of those guys are averaging over five a carry. Uh, ETN and Webb are a little bit more explosive. Montreal Johnson Jr. a little bit more of your grinder, I guess. Um, but really, all three have had some success this year. Yeah, and I think we're talking about matchups too. Something else that people need to get it. Um, people should know it is it Kingsley Aguakwin. I think I said that name right. Florida starting center. He has been for a few years now. I believe he leads that offense in total starts. He is out Saturday. Their backup has played. He's played in a few games this season, Jake Slaughter. But that is a backup center, obviously snapping the ball, but getting the calls, getting the protections in a road environment. I believe it was AM last year who was playing with a backup center at South Carolina, and they botched the snap. Yeah, okay, so they botched the snap in that first quarter. 
I think that's something to watch for just in terms of Florida's running game. But also, if you look at where South Carolina is, at least up front, has kind of played well defensively, you think about, okay, TJ Sanders played very well against Georgia. Tonka Hemingway played well against Mississippi State. Um, Nick Barrett had a big play against Mississippi State down on the goal line. Like, Boogie Huntley, obviously. Your defensive tackles, you feel in I don't want to say pretty good because you, you don't have a whole lot of depth there. And I think you saw that against Tennessee when Sanders got hurt in the second half. But you feel like you might have an advantage there on the interior against the interior of Florida's offensive line. And I think that gets driven home even more by the fact that they're down a center. So that's where starting the run starts or stopping the run starts. Obviously, we've heard from the coaches, 11-player effort, edges, safeties, linebackers, corners, nickel. But if you're just talking about point of attack and going back to what Beamer said after Tennessee, that someone's got to win a one-on-one rep. I think you like your one-on-ones on the interior. Yeah, I think that also could be an advantage uh, with the home environment yes. and uh, mixing up your blitz packages and stuff. Mm-hmm. Generally, your center is the one that's kind of uh, calling out protections and stuff. So if you can confuse the the more inexperienced guy a little bit, I think that that could prove to be an advantage as well. Um, as far as Florida's passing game, Graham Mertz, if you guys have been following college football for the past few years, he's pretty much the same guy, maybe slightly more efficient than he was um, in the big 10, but still not a huge threat down the field or anything, but uh, he protects the ball pretty well, pretty good game manager, and he can make the short throws uh, when they're there. That is going to be Florida's offense this week. I think it's, it's ironic. We're talking about um, South Carolina hitting stuff over the middle of the field, trying to make guys miss against Tennessee. That's a lot of what you're going to see from Graham Mertz in this Florida offense. I think they understand the bread and butters in the running game. That's not something they're going to really try to get away from. Having said that, even though it's not going for big yards, Graham Mertz has completed 82% of his passes in conference play. A lot of that's short. It's over the middle. It's a lot of throws to the running backs. Try to get those guys involved in other ways. But there is something to be said for the fact that he's going to complete most of his passes. A lot of it's going to be over the middle. You have to make tackles in space. That That is, again, I'm kind of flipping what I said about what Tennessee did well, but this needs to be a tackling game because I would say South Carolina didn't tackle particularly well at Tennessee, and that's kind of what Florida's bread and butter is, just making guys miss both in the running game at the point of attack and also the passing game over the middle. Definitely, and he just hasn't really been putting the ball in danger very much. He's right. got nine touchdowns to two interceptions, and like you said, completing 80% of his passes, so – um, I do think it's going to be key for South Carolina to put him into some third and long situations where he can't throw it behind the sticks. Um, I mean, they may still try, as we've seen some teams do from time to time. Uh, but uh, I, I think, yeah, putting him in those those more pressure pack situations will be key here. Um, offensively, Florida's been a little bit susceptible to the run game, uh, especially against Kentucky and Tennessee. Yep. Um, which are their two losses. Uh, Do you see a path for Mario Anderson to continue to kind of settle in and um, be a reliable back in this game? Or um, is it going to have to be more, you know, piecing it together kind of the way we've seen the rest of the year? I think that's your other kind of story here is what kind of wrinkles did you put together in the running game? Dowell Loggins said, yeah, and Jane Beamer, but Loggins yesterday was explaining that, excuse me, during the bye week, they watched every single inefficient run back. And in his definition, inefficient runs are less than four yards on first and second down, um, less than half the yards left on third down, and less than a conversion on fourth down. Apparently there's been 69 of them in six games, which when you kind of do that math, that's over 11 a game of those. So he said they watched all of them, they charted them, they tried to figure out what went wrong, what needs to be better there. Are you going to see – I don't want to say different run schemes. I don't think you're reinventing your playbook that you installed in August in week seven. But are you going to see some different looks in the running game, trying some different things? Um, I think that's one of the other kind of wrinkles to this game. Yeah, I agree. I think also it's really hard to know what Florida team we're going to see uh, this weekend. Um, when you look at their schedule, it's been <laughs> – very bipolar, I guess. Uh, so they lost at Utah. Um, they beat Tennessee. I, I misspoke a second ago when I said that they lost Tennessee. Uh, they beat Tennessee, which is their lone, I guess, impressive win of the season. 
um, and they lost at Kentucky. Um, outside of that, they've won home games against McNeese, Charlotte, and Vanderbilt. Um, so, so far, not playing as well on the road and not playing as well against average to above average competition outside of that Tennessee game, which was at home. Um, so I do think that there are some trends, I guess, uh, that lead you to believe that South Carolina has a good shot here. Do you know what Billy Napier's record is away from the swamp as Florida head coach? I don't. That's in, that. I mean, I want to know. What is it? One in seven. Wow. You've got That's a neutral site loss to Georgia last year, a neutral site loss in a bowl game last year. They lost at Florida State, at Tennessee, at Vanderbilt last year, at Utah this year, at Kentucky this year. The one win was at AM last year. Uh, once the season gone off the rails there, which I only bring up to say, if you play from ahead against this team, I think the game script thing we've talked about, we've had that discussion pretty much any time they face a team that likes to run the ball. I think it's especially prevalent this week because Florida leads the SEC in time of possession. Those short throws over the middle, those runs, they're averaging about plus eight or nine minutes a game in TOP. Like they want to lean on you and pound on you and shorten the game. They got down 24 to three at Utah. They got down 30 to seven at Kentucky. I'm not saying you have to be up by 30 points at halftime, but if you get ahead of this team, they haven't really shown any ability to get that back last year or this year. They're 4-0 this year they beat at halftime. They're 0-2 when they trail at halftime. Yeah, if you play, if you start fast, you play from ahead, you absolutely should win this game. I don't I think that's kind of, I don't want to say that's a key because it's kind of stating the obvious, but yeah, you should win this game. Well, and again, uh, if we're looking at how that could translate to South Carolina season thus far, that's actually been something that they've been relatively successful at is getting off to a fast start. Yeah. Um, those first couple of series that are more scripted have been very successful. Um, in general, they have tended to play pretty well uh, under Shane Beamer at home outside of what, like the Missouri game last year. Yeah. Georgia, um, but, you know, Georgia, Georgia. Yeah. That's, that's a different <laughs> animal entirely. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot to feel optimistic about. Um I, do you know what the line's sitting at right now? I'll check. South Carolina favored by two last I looked. Okay, so ba- essentially a pick them. Um, but I think that there are reasons to be optimistic overall, I guess. Yeah, so one more thing, just getting back to the running game quickly. We're going to get your take on if you, if you people have a take, GameCuckScoop.com, subscriber, insiders forum, we'll, we'll talk about it with you, we'll chop it up. This kind of, I don't want to say it went viral, but I, I asked Owl Loggins yesterday about the Juju McDowell third and one as opposed to Mario Anderson or the carry on joiner. And some people kind of ran with what he said, weren't happy. A lot of blame for Ontario Hardesty, a lot of blame for Loggins himself. Here's the quote quote Sometimes it's more situational. I think the short yardage play you're referring to, it wasn't, hey, we're scheming Juju for this third down. It was a tempo play that we went with that that we went to that Juju happened to be on that series of the game. Coach Hardesty controls the subs and how he's going to play his running backs. It wasn't a design like, hey, this is our third and one short yardage situation. It happened to be his series in the rotation. That wasn't like, hey, we're going to get zero as a number zero in more in short yardage. That wasn't the thought process. Which we talked about that last week um, coming off of that Tennessee loss and basically assumed that that's what had happened there um, was you were trying to run tempo. Um I understand why I guess that's been a controversial uh, quote. It does sound slightly like he threw Hardesty <laughs> under the bus. Um, I don't, I assume that was not his, his intention. No. Um, you, you, I mean, you were in the room. It probably reads worse. Uh, it reads a lot worse than, than he said it. I mean, the video is exactly. online. You can watch it. It's on the game. Um, that said, I do think that there's still that's one of those like feel for the game sorts of things where you have to realize what your situation is and who cares if you wanted to run tempo there. You, you can't, you can't, uh, especially at that point in the game, uh, you can't make that call to um, keep Juju in, make the sub, take up some more time, get the package that you need in there uh, in that particular situation. But I mean, there's an argument either way, right? If you run tempo and the tempo keeps them on the heels and Juju picks up two yards or whatever, we're not even talking about this. That's, I think that's a good point too. I mean, it's, 
the idea, and again, circling back to what Shane Beamer said, someone's got to win a one-on-one. Someone's got to make a man miss. I didn't agree with the personnel usage there. I kind of, I get the idea that, okay, if you want to bring Joyner back into the game or Anderson, he's in good short yardage too. If you want to bring one of those two guys back in, okay, the refs could have stand over the ball and let Tennessee sub. That's how this works. Um, I can understand if you thought maybe you had the right personnel out there or Tennessee didn't have the right personnel out there. You got the third and one. You want to keep that going. I understand yeah. that someone's got to make a man miss. I get that. You trust any Division One running back to pick up a yard on a handoff. I think that's kind of the general theme here. You're stuck in a little bit of a catch-22, yeah. I think, because I have been saying for the past few weeks that Juju McDowell needs more touches. I think he is um, explosive in a different way than Joyner or Anderson are. Um, and yeah, you don't want him in there, you know, every, every play of a series or anything like that, but he needs to get some touches worked in that said, if the philosophy is that they want to run tempo once they get a first down or, or whatever, um, and you need the flexibility of a guy that can, you know, you can call play for him first down, second down, third down, whatever, no matter what the situation is. He's not that guy, unfortunately. So I don't really know how you solve uh, for that um, conundrum because I I I think both of those things are true. He needs more touches and you have to be prepared for whatever it is that's going to come at you if that's going to be your offensive philosophy. Yeah, and if you're – the part of this quote that I think really got people the wrong way other than the hardesty thing is it was his series in the rotation as in – this is the Juju drive no matter what. This is the DK drive no matter what. This is the Mario drive no matter what. I get it. That is how it, that is how it works. That is how a lot of teams do it. I also think that's, again, it's what you said. It's not really accounting for situational stuff, for flexibility. I realize if you sub a running back, the Tennessee gets to sub two. I understand how that works. Don't tweet that at me. I get it. Um I think you got to have a little bit more flexibility there, especially in that spot where you know there's a short yardage situation coming. And also, well, if you don't get the third down, you're going to be subbing anyway, probably, because you definitely need the right personnel in the game on fourth down. Yeah, I I agree. So we'll see if they make any changes to that philosophy next time they're in third and one and and Juju's in the game or whatever. Um, Remind me what part of the game that was like second quarter that second quarter you're down 14 10 like seven yeah. minutes to halftime so again i don't know that i even agree with the read that he is saying that's juju's drive uh and that's that was going to be Ju- you know drive five was going to be juju's drive no matter what um it's pretty early in the game i think they're probably trying to look for ways to get him more involved as well and they probably had it written on either he or Hardesty had it written on the play sheet, like get Juju involved early. Um, right. It happened to Cole in, you know, I guess the worst possible scenario <laughs> um, or one of the worst possible scenarios, which is why we're still talking about it. But yeah, I don't know. I I wouldn't read too much into that quote, I guess. No, I wouldn't read as much. Definitely wouldn't read as much into it as what other people have and what's kind of been in my mentions the last few days. Um, and I think the other angle of this that people are forgetting is Juju loses a yard and then you throw the ball short of the sticks on fourth and two, and Tennessee makes a tackle on the next play. So, again, you talk about if Juju makes a guy miss, you're not talking about this. If you call a better fourth down play, or if Leggett, I think it was Leggett, makes a guy miss on the fourth and two when he catches the ball basically the line of scrimmage, we're not talking about it either. It's a weird third and one stop that you pick up the next play and you keep the drive going. Yeah, to me, of all of the things to analyze about the 2023 version of South Carolina. (laughs) Um, I don't know that play calling or uh, personnel decisions are very high on my list. Running back Um, usage. Yeah. I think that that's been about as good as it can be considering the circumstances. Has it been perfect? Sure. No, never will be. Um, But all things considered, I, I, I don't have a ton to complain about with the offense. I don't think. 
Yeah, I, um, I think that just comes as a combination of, again, kind of talking about perfect storm. Your worst offensive game of the year, not points-wise, but just in terms of the way it looked. Um, a bye week, the fact that that was a big SEC game, two weeks to sit on it. I think it is kind of a, a worst-case scenario thing just in terms of discourse and discussion. And it also gets back to the, the larger issue here. Yeah, you don't have Barry Sanders in your backfield. <laughs> You don't, you don't even have – you look at your opponents, you don't have a Trevor Etienne in your backfield. You don't have a Montreal Johnson. You're going to have to get creative in the running game, and sometimes it's going to look really good, and sometimes it's not. Yeah, it also gets back to, I guess, what our discussion at the beginning of the podcast was, is like state of the program, yeah. what does success mean, all those sorts of things. I do think perception, especially online, the, the Twitter crowd of Tennessee and South Carolina – have been vitriolic for like a year. Yeah. You came up on the wrong side of that one, um, which makes it sting even more, I guess. Um, maybe you had inflated expectations based on the way that things went last year too. Um, I think Tennessee is the better football team at this particular point of where the programs are at. Um, but you, I mean, you had your opportunities. You know, we we we've already rehashed that game. There's no need to talk about Tennessee. Look, it's Florida week. I think kind of what I said at the start of the show here is going to be my lean all week. It's just you got to find a way here. This is a find a way. I remember we talked after the Mississippi State game about that fourth quarter about how you made plays. Um, Jordan Strong made a play. Judge Collier made a play recovering that fumble. Nick Barrett made a goal line tackle to force a field goal. Obviously, Rattler and the get made plays like. You make winning plays. You just – if you execute, if you make plays, if you do what you have to do, this stuff does kind of take care of itself. And this is a week, more than any other week this season, at least so far, is just a win-at-all-cost week. Yeah, I agree. So let's get your prediction, um, and I'll give you mine as well for how this is actually going to play out. And then I do want to talk really briefly about some of the NIL – uh, comments um, that that came up throughout this week too, but uh, before we get off track, uh, what what do you think is going to happen in this one? I'm picking South Carolina to win the game. I'm not saying it's going to be pretty. I'm definitely not saying it has to be pretty. I think my point on that's pretty well established. You just need to win by one or a hundred this week. I think I said 24-21 South Carolina. I do think it's close. I don't think either of these teams are good enough to blow out the other one. Although I do lean if there is a blowout in South Carolina doing what everyone else has done when Florida's traveled this year and just getting up quick and Mertz can't get it back. I'll say South Carolina close, but if you maybe choose if you maybe choose a double digit winner, I'd be more confident in South Carolina than Florida. Yeah, I think I will not uh put any money on it, but the minus two and a half or whatever it's at right now feels relatively safe and i would pick south carolina to win by like 10 or so um i that's because of the home environment how kind that has been that's because of um i guess the matchups that we we discussed before i think south carolina has just got a much more explosive offense than florida does um and i don't and i think south carolina's defense is uh steady enough to cause Graham Mertz to try to win the game for them. And that generally hasn't gone super well throughout his career. So uh, say like 27, 17, something like that. Oh, you're going double. That is one other thing I forgot to mention though, just on the explosive plays. I think that's a, a good point actually. I wrote a little bit about in my final preview that'll run tomorrow. Ford has been prone to giving up those four touchdowns this year, over 55 yards, three of them passing one rush. And they gave up an 85 yard touchdown pass to Vanderbilt last week. Will Shepard got behind the defense. You can hit one of those. You can hit two of those. And even that's enough as we saw against Mississippi State to flip a game. All right. You want to talk about NIL a little bit? <laughs> it's my favorite subject. Uh, so for those of you that missed it, uh, Kentucky obviously uh, got blown out by Georgia last week, 51-13. to 13. After the game, uh, Stoops said, I can promise you, Georgia, they bought some pretty good players. You're allowed to these days, and we could use some help. That's what they look like. You know what I mean? When you have 85 of them, I encourage anybody that's disgruntled to pony up some more, um, which, of course, then every other coach that's – I mean, I assume Kirby Smart got asked about it too, but every other coach uh, that doesn't have 
uh, that level of talent, I guess, got asked about those comments, including Shane Beamer this week. Um, and I'll give you his quote, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about it. So he said, I mean, first of all, he kind of joked that he was wondering if that was going to be asked or he was waiting on it to be asked. But he said, I can't speak for his program. I can't speak for the Georgia program, but NIL is certainly a major factor, not just in college football, but all across college athletics. If you want to win at the highest level and you want to win championships like we do at Carolina, we're going to have to be very active from an NIL standpoint. And we did talk about this several times this summer uh, where South Carolina finished second uh, to several recruits, um, maybe coming back around on Lewis Solomon. Uh, another one I can think of is Jonathan Paler or um, Malcolm Ziegler. Let me get your take uh, from someone that's, I guess, not as uh, entrenched in the recruiting side of things. And then uh, I'll kind of wrap it up from there. Fact of life in college football in 2023, yeah, you're going to have to swim with the deep end of the pool. You're going to have to play in that arena. I think to me, when I look at NIL, this is kind of going back to our state of the program discussion we had last week about, okay, what signs would make you think this thing actually is off track? It's about retention as much as anything else. And I understand what Shane Beamer is saying about talent acquisition, about, you know, winning recruiting battles, like getting on the trail. Uh, how different is this looking to get another running back in the portal? I get all of that. I think what a lot of schools miss and maybe what Mark Stoops is missing too is there does need to be a level of keeping your guys around. As in, you know, we, we don't have to run through the names. You know how many guys transferred off this team last year, how different this might look. Um, if you got some of those guys, I mean, Marshawn Lloyd's a big one, but I think that's almost part of this as much as anything else too. Now, having said that, yeah, the school's NIL, F, NIL effort probably needs to be better. I don't think there's any way around that. Yeah, so um, I actually talked in depth with the NIL coordinator. I can't remember exact title right now, um, but I had an in-depth interview about the state of NIL uh, at South Carolina back uh, over the summer. You can check that out on GamecockScoop.com. Just Google like GamecockScoop NIL article, whatever. You should be able to find it. Anyway, um, and one of the things that I guess I took away from that conversation uh, is the university itself is doing everything it can within the rules as they are stated. Um, I'm, I also got the sense that there are other universities that maybe are skirting those rules a little bit or playing a little bit faster and looser with those rules, which probably isn't all that surprising. Um, but that for the most part, there is nothing that the university can do as far as recruiting goes to like, be like, Hey, this is a package that you will definitely get when you get here. Whereas I think some other schools maybe are framing it that way. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Anyway, uh, the big thing for me, I think is if you're going to get into bidding wars for lack of a better term in NIL. I do think it probably should be with people that have already proven it on the field. That's be it on, my retention thing, proven yeah, production. Yeah. yeah. On, on your team or in the portal or whatever. Um, as far as recruiting goes, I think it's been the staff's job to try to find the guys that don't have NIL at the top of their list. Um, as far as uh, what's going to make them choose a school or not. And I think that they've done a pretty good job of that. I know Dylan Stewart in particular, the 2024 five-star edge that's committed to South Carolina right now. Um, that wasn't something that was very high on his list. Now he's a five-star uh, out of Georgia um, coming to an SEC program. He's going to do fine, right? But just like Nick Harbor, five-star coming to an SEC program, doing fine. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I think some of those bigger names in recruiting probably can go pretty much anywhere and be fine. It's the three and four star kids that they lost out on over the summer that I think is where you start to see the high school sort of impact where I'm trying to think of the like most diplomatic way of saying it. Uh, they're not at the top of anyone's recruiting board, but they're like high uh, on people's recruiting board, but some other programs might be 
making promises like they're at the top of that recruiting board. I I also think there's a there's a level of this too, and I think maybe this goes to what you're saying a little bit that Devin Leary is not at Kentucky for free. Devin Leary is getting so, I I don't I guess I shouldn't have said that so so bluntly, but like Devin Leary was a portal ad that a lot of schools wanted. Ray Davis was a portal ad that a lot of schools wanted. He's coming for Vanderbilt. There was always going to be a jump somewhere, but Kentucky's used the portals. I don't want to say as much as anyone, but they've used the portal. Well, they've picked their spots. They've supplemented the roster with talent. I think maybe the Mark Stoops point is more. We're not doing it with five stars. We don't have 85 scholarship players on our roster that all have NIL deals, but every school's using it. I think it um, it becomes about choosing your spots as much as anything. Right. I think we all agree. Kentucky's a pretty good football team. And on the level of Georgia, that's fine. I don't think anybody in the SEC is right now. Then we'd all agree Kentucky is A, a good football team, and B, better because they've portaled and the way they've portaled over the offseason, especially this past one, supplementing the offense and the offensive line. Yeah, that's part of it. I think Mark Stoops has probably bought players, however you want to say that. Um, but it's about choosing your spots, finding the right guys, what fits your system, and developing kind of a system that works for them, especially when you're at a program like Kentucky or South Carolina that isn't going to be Georgia. I guess I guess I don't really understand what the complaint is on Mark Stoops' side. I guess he wants more NIL. He's rallying his base, his people. It's a comment for Kentucky for Kentucky boosters more than it is attacking Kirby Smart or attacking college football was the way I kind of read it. And yeah, you should it, fire up your base. I take it that way too, and it's not a bad – strategic no move. not at all nick saban did the same thing like two years ago when he was doing the jimbo stuff over the offseason um i also i guess just a, a a clarifying note um i don't think any i don't think officially any uh head football coach in the country is like directly involved in these deals um or at least that's not the way it's supposed to be right it's supposed to be a collective or a company itself uh, makes a deal directly with a student athlete. Um, and then right now the university can just kind of like help be a middleman a little bit, but right. that's, that's about all that they can do. And I will say um, if I'm giving some, some credit to South Carolina's NIL program, which I think is really robust and interesting and, and doing a lot of interesting things, considering it's not a Texas A&M from a, uh, alumni standpoint. I mean, South Carolina's got got money uh, around, but it's not it's not oil money. money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, one thing I will give them a lot of credit for is they're taking a a unique approach on educating student athletes how to build their own personal brand, um, so that even if you're not uh, Dylan Stewart or Nick Carver or whatever, uh, you can elevate your profile and and uh, make some money for yourself. So one of those big things is like learning how to use social media as an effective tool or, or whatever. Um, having a podcast, like uh, who was it last year that had the podcast? Uh, it was um, Darius Rush and uh, wide receiver. That's not Josh Van. Josh Van, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, I guess all of that to say I am not in panic mode about NIL uh, from a South Carolina recruiting or transfer portal or anything standpoint. Um, that said, if you do want to help, we, unlike some of the other uh, news organizations, I guess, within the the space are not going to create a NIL collective or, or whatever. We're not getting into that space at all. We're going to do Gamecock news. Uh, so I'm happy to let you know that uh, Garnet Trust and whatever the 2471 are, uh, great. Go donate to them if because those guys are both uh, filtering money back to South Carolina athletes. Um, if you want to give back, do that. Come to our site for some news. We won't ever be involved in the NIL stuff, but um, we will report on it because that's what we do. Yeah, I, I viewed it as a comment for Kentucky boosters more than for the entire college football media to jump on, but I guess that's just how it works. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it was certainly inflammatory, especially coming off such a promising start for Kentucky in the way that they got beat. Uh, so there's a little bit of a spotlight there, and I mean, it's it's an it's going to be an ongoing issue yeah. for college athletics programs. Um, I think it's only going to get more 
complicated. <laughs> you know, the the Pandora's box has been open. Yeah, it's not going back. Yeah. Um, so um, I do think you have some very smart people at the University of South Carolina that are working through how to best navigate it. I think um, the state legislator did a good job of kind of like pumping the brakes on any new legislation uh, surrounding what universities can or cannot do with NIL. And um, now you just got to figure out how to finagle within the confines that you're you're giving it given i guess um i am very interested to see how the portal period goes after this season because i think that this off season could be a make or break moment for the trajectory of the program under shane beamer because you can't have another season where you're you can't have another off season where you're losing two or three of your top uh returning starters to other programs um regardless of how good you're recruiting you can't you can't continue to replace veteran junior five-star ish sort of um athletes with true freshmen even if they're very good yeah i think that's kind of saying everything that i thought about saying there just wait see see what happens this when the season ends see how the portal period goes and then i think you can kind of draw your own conclusions or maybe figure out what the next steps are after that but right now sitting here on october 12th there's games to talk about there's a very big game to talk about on saturday and i think that's kind of where the focus is right now for the program yeah sorry to derail us too much with nil no you're good I, I know that's something that uh our subscribers and stuff are always pretty interested in but because it's there is a lot of it, it seems like a very complicated thing even though at its essence it's players making deals with collectives or with uh individual corporations yeah. but you know that you get all these numbers thrown around uh in the national news you know texas a&m spending 50 million or whatever they did on their recruiting class and um for a fourth and one punt yeah and, and, and people assume that i guess south carolina is not doing everything it could uh in the space and, and in my opinion that's not true um are there some systems that can continue to improve. I think everyone uh, would agree with that. And I, I think they've made some big moves even in the past year on that. Um, but uh, I don't think that South Carolina is behind, I guess, in any way. You just don't have, yeah, Texas oil money. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. So we will have plenty more previewing the South Carolina and Florida game on GameCocksGroup.com in the next couple of days. Um, Alan wrote a really good couple of articles earlier this week kind of looking at the transition through the bye week the details that have been worked through uh in that uh extra week that you get also you mentioned that this is the earliest bye week uh so far in the shane beamer era um and so far they've done very well coming out of bye weeks yeah. and you have you know seven games now uh to kind of prove that that mid-season reset was good starting this week so we will uh have a live thread this weekend starting around noon or so on gamecocksgroup.com on the insiders forum and uh come chat with us about the football game and we'll be back here on sunday morning to yep. talk the review of that game so next time it's been the gamecocksgroup.com podcast we'll see you